Philippians chapter 1, starting at verse 12. Now I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. As a result, it has become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. And because of my chains, most of the brothers and sisters have become more confident in the Lord and dare all the more to proclaim the gospel without fear. It is true that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. The latter do so out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former preach Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing that they can stir up trouble for me while I am in chains. But what does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached. And because of this, I rejoice. Yes, and I will continue to rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and God's provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage so that now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I am to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. Yet what shall I choose? I do not know. I am torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far. But it is more necessary for you that I remain in the body. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain, and I will continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith, so that through my being with you again, your boasting in Christ Jesus will abound on account of me. This is God's word. Paul can say, for me to live is Christ, to die is gain. Now, there are bits of the Bible where uh, the scriptures are, uh, are somewhat out of step with our culture. Uh, so here we are. Uh, so here's the Bible and our culture is over here. And there's a gap. And that can be awkward. It seems to me this is one of those bits of the Bible where the scriptures are quite a long way away from, well, from most of us. For me to live is Christ, to die is gain. I don't know if instinctively you'd put it that way. What would you say you live for? What do you live for? Oh, there are multiple answers. Uh, do, you want to see, uh, do you want to see 60 people answering that question in two minutes? Good, correct, great, very quickly. <laughs> Let's see if we got that. 60 people, two minutes, what do you live for? I quite like the bloke who says, oh, just getting by. Because the reality is actually most of the time, most of the time, I think that's you and me. If someone asks you the question, what are you living for? You need to, particularly if someone's got a camera on you, you feel the need to say something somewhat vaguely interesting. Uh, And just getting by probably doesn't cut it for most. But actually for most of us, most weeks, in the middle of a Wednesday or Wednesday afternoon at three o'clock is, well, I don't know, just getting by, just getting on to the next thing. What do you live? Paul says, for me, to live is Christ, to die is gain. 
And therefore, he's able to rejoice in the most extraordinary circumstances. Here is a man who has tied his joy to the progress of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Therefore, whatever is going on, he is able to rejoice. Or as you put it in chapter 4, I've learned the secret of being content in each and every circumstance, whether I'm in need or whether I'm in plenty. I'm happy, whatever. Now, I suggest, even though we may not be there and with Paul, we do want that. If I said, you do want to know the secret of being content in each and every circumstance, not many are going to say, nah, being grumpy, that's my thing. <laughs> to be con- but we're a long way away from that. Because Paul says, actually, the secret is uh, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. I'm all about him. And as he tops and tails this passage, verse 12, I'm about the advance of the gospel. Or uh, verse 25, I'm about your progress and joy. It's actually the same word. The thing that gets me joyful, rejoicing, is the progress, the advancement of the gospel. And that is always happening. So at every situation, I can be content. I can be joyful. Now, if you hear last week, we said uh, the context of the letter is that Paul is in prison. He's in prison. He's on remand. Uh, in those days, there's no penal sentences as such. You, you, you're on remand and you come to trial and you're executed or you're set free. That's it. It's a pretty binary choice. And uh, no one feeds you on remand. So if you're there languishing in prison on remand, awaiting your trial, you're, you're, deter- you're uh, reliant upon external help to come in. That's Paul. So his life is grim. He's been there somewhere between 12 and 18 months on remand. He's writing to a favorite church, the church in Philippi. They have shown him great concern. They've sent him Epaphroditus, who has both brought money, pretty key if you've got nothing to eat, uh, so you can buy some food, and just personal encouragement. And he's writing this letter back to them, because you can imagine this church in Philippi, they are, well, they're unsettled, we'll be putting it mildly. They're now starting to experience persecution for the faith. Some of them are losing their possessions. So Paul is writing from prison to a church, and no doubt they're anxious for him. He's their pastor. He's the guy who'd set up the church. They're anxious about themselves. What's going to happen to us? Are we going to languish in prison too? No doubt they're enormously discouraged. Well, we've become Christians, but it ain't going so well. And to a church feeling those sort of uh, burdens or pressures, Paul can say, chapter 1, verse 12, I want you to know, brothers and sisters, what's happened to me is brilliant. Don't worry about me. Because what's going on is advancing the gospel. And therefore, I'm rejoicing. So don't worry. Rejoice with me, he says. Uh, Let's look at it this way. So uh, three things. Then Paul rejoiced in the progress of the gospel, 12 to 18. He rejoiced in his deliverance, 18 to 21. And in this, his priority was there, rejoicing, 22 to 26. He can rejoice despite his circumstances because the gospel is growing. Let's work through it then. First, Paul rejoiced in the progress of the gospel, verses 12 to 18. The gospel is advancing. Let me read verse 12 again. I want you to know, brothers and sisters, what's happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. Well, how is that? 
Well, he gives three little reasons. Despite him being in prison, the gospel is uh, advancing, therefore he's delighted. Uh, First is verse 13. As a result of being in prison, it's become clear throughout the whole palace guard to everyone else that I'm in chains for Christ. He said, yeah, I'm in prison, but it's fantastic because I've wondered for ages, how do I share the gospel with soldiers? And now I'm in Rome and the emperor's praetorian guard, about 9,000 of them, I get to share the gospel with them all the time. So you remember when I was with you, I was thinking, how do I, how do I, how do I share with the military this wonderful news about Jesus? Now I'm in prison and surrounded by soldiers. It's fantastic. I'm so excited by the opportunities I've got. That's what he's saying. You can't stop this man. There's the first reason he's encouraged. He's sharing the gospel with soldiers in prison. At two, the believers are being emboldened. Verse 14, because of my chains, most of the brothers and sisters become confident in the Lord and dare all the more to proclaim the gospel without fear. Others who are Christians are looking at Paul in prison thinking, oh, he's still going. He's not caving in. It just puts a little bit of steel in the backbone. So the soldiers are hearing the gospel. Others, uh, Christians, have become more confident. And then the third little reason is verses 15 to 18. Christ is being preached, even though people's motives are dubious. This is a bit more complicated, this one. But in 15 to 18, there are clearly two groups. Let me read it. It is true that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, group one, but others out of goodwill. The latter do so out of love, knowing that I'm put here for the defense of the gospel. That's group two. But group one, the former preach Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing that they can stir up trouble for me while I'm in chains. So clearly two groups. One group love Paul. And they can see that he's in prison because of what he believes. He's in prison because he won't deny Jesus Christ. And so they're encouraged. And they keep on preaching the gospel, you know, because they're with him. There's another group who clearly don't like Paul. There's some sort of personal rivalry. And they want to cause him some distress. They want to stir up trouble for me. It has the sort of sense of an internal issue. They want to stir up unrest or unease. or They want to make Paul miserable in prison. We don't know the details of how they think they're doing that. But clearly there's some sort of personal rivalry. And they want to beat Paul. But he can say, verse 18, I don't care. What does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached. Because of this, I rejoice. He says, yeah, I know they hate me, and their motives suck. They stink. But they are still telling people that Jesus is Lord, that Jesus has died for them, so they can go to be with God in heaven forever. They're still teaching the gospel. They're just, their motives suck. So don't worry about that. And so I I guess he'd say that to you and me. I I hope I've never preached the gospel out of rivalry. I would hope you never do such a thing or or tell someone about Christianity because you're wanting to beat someone else. It's a bit odd. But even if that's the case, if the message of Jesus is going out, brilliant, says Paul, I don't even care why they're doing it. They're just doing it. You can't stop a man like that. Christ is being preached, so I'm joyful. You can't hold a man like that back. I very much enjoy reading this book. 
uh, Charlie, this is your copy, I think. Uh, I should probably give it back to you. Um, but um, uh, this book, Dick McClellan's Warriors of Ethiopia, tells the story. Dick McClellan was um, uh, an Aussie. He was, uh, went to Ethiopia for 23 years as a, a, a missionary. Uh, and this is just stories of the uh, of Ethiopian evangelists. So he's just observed what they were doing and tells their stories. Terrific read, each chapter, uh, just a few pages Brilliant, brilliant. Uh, loads of great stories in here uh, about these men who, and women who are just determined to tell others about Jesus. I quite like the story of uh, Mahe. Mahe, uh, if you read his little story, he was imprisoned 33 times for explaining the gospel. Now, in Ethiopia, when you get these Christian evangelists, they're telling people about Jesus. Some love it because they're set free from sin. They're set free from um, Fear, very fearful culture that the witch doctors have put curses upon them. So, so, power, so lots of people are just, oh, we're set free. It's magnificent. But the corrupt officials, uh, dubious witch doctors, it's hitting them in the pocket when people become Christians. So they don't like it. So they're the ones that persecute them. Anyway, so Mahe gets imprisoned 33 times for varying lengths of time, uh, up to five years. Uh, but Dick just says it's amazing because he goes around telling people how much he rejoices. He says, I rejoice that I have been in, pr- in every single prison in the southern half of Ethiopia. There is not a single prison I've not been in, and every prison I've been in, I've told everyone there about Jesus. So now I've got the north, and I want to go north and go to every prison in the north. Now, that's a slightly eccentric way of phrasing things, but you see, you can't hold a man like that back. Dick says on another occasion, he saw him going to be tried. So there's Mahe and 52 others uh, being marched along a street. They're all chained. Their, their wrists and uh, ankles, they're all chained. And so sort of shuffling along together, going to their trial. And they're singing. He says there's this extraordinary choir in chains marching along the street. And Dick said he's sort of observing this. And an old guy next to him says, I do not understand. They are in chains, and yet they sing like they're a triumphant army. Why is that? Well, let me tell you. Uh, and uh, they have got a, a useful conversation. But they do, they stand their trial, and all of them are imprisoned for a year for overturning cultural values, I think is the charge against them. But as they're marched off to prison, they're singing. He quotes their songs. I don't think they translate very well because they sound like pretty daft songs. I wouldn't, but essentially the gist of the Jesus is my king. He reigns forever. I'm with him. You just can't stop a man like that, like Mahe. And you read his story and you think, yeah. Yet I, I want to be, I want to stand up for Jesus too. And Mahe says, well, the gospel's going out, so you can imprison me if you want. In fact, I'd rather like it if you did, particularly in the north of the country, because I've not been there. But you can't stop a man like that, and you can't stop a man like Paul, because their joy is tied to the progress of the gospel. He rejoiced in the progress of the gospel. Now, look, just a little tangent on that. Um, in our culture, we're slightly taught or encouraged to be scared of religious extremists. And of course, there's a sense when, when that is right. So did you see the extraordinary thing this week? Uh, uh, on Tuesday, it was, it was in the papers, uh, a florist in Manchester. Did you see this one? Uh, he's a florist to uh, Beckham and 
Manchester United footballers over the years. He's a celebrity florist. Anyway, he was, uh, he was surprised when someone showed him he was in an IS magazine saying, here's a man you should kill because we hate people like this who give flowers and sell flowers. And this should be one of the places, if you're a lone wolf, you should go and kill this man. There's, there's loads of other places named Bondi Beach and all sorts of things. Now that is, this guy, oh, what am I doing in this magazine? What have they got against me? And of course that's horrific. And that sort of hatred is despicable. But, but please, I hope we can all distinguish, not everyone in this country can, between a message of hate that says kill innocent people and Paul or Mahe's message of love, which says we want to go and save people. You might call this man an extremist. You might call Paul an extremist. But an extremist with a message of love who will go and serve people is very different from one with hate. He wants to kill. I hope you can see the difference between those two. It really is extraordinary difference. But I guess for you and for me, for most of us here, if we're Christians, if we're Christians and we read sort of Philippians chapter 1, and we think, well, I'm not really filled with the joy. I'm not, the spread of the gospel doesn't really get me excited particularly very much. Then we're malfunctioning. Something's gone wrong. Because Paul would point out to us, what is more exciting than this? Than the, the message of Jesus Christ saving people from hell, for heaven, forever. That's spreading. What, what, people are becoming Christians. What's more exciting than that? As if you never find yourself getting excited by that. You read this book for a start. Dick McClellan, Warriors of Ethiopia. Tim Kesey's book is, is a, another great recent one. Dispatches from the front line. Just stories of the last five years. All the stans, people becoming Christians in the, in the Afghanistan, Uzbekistan, etc. Fantastic. It just makes you think, brilliant. This is wonderful. Paul rejoiced in the progress of the gospel. Second thing, verse 18 to 21, he, he goes, okay, let's look forward. I was rejoicing in that, but now I'm going to continue to rejoice. Verse 18 to 21, he rejoiced in his deliverance. Verse 18. Yes, and I'll continue to rejoice going forward. For I know that through your prayers and God's provision of the spirit of Jesus Christ, what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance i eagerly expect and hope that i will in no way be ashamed but have sufficient courage so that now as always christ will be exalted in my body whether by life or by death okay look i I can rejoice in two things i'm going to continue to rejoice in two things in particular verse 19 i know i'm going to be delivered verse 20 i know or I, i i hope eagerly expect that i'll stand up and be courageous in court those two things cause me to rejoice but what actually is he talking about? Verse 19. I continue to rejoice because of my deliverance. Now that can't just mean I'm rejoicing because I know I'm going to be set free. Because he doesn't know that. But this word deliverance is just the normal word for salvation. Sort of footnote will tell you that. So he's saying I'm delighted in whatever happens to me. I'll be vindicated in God's courtroom. No matter what happens in Caesar's courtroom. I'm excited by that. And verse 20. I know I'm not going to bottle it. There'll come a moment in court where the question is put to me, Paul of Tarsus, do you insist that Jesus is your king and Caesar is not? He 
He says, and I know what that means. If I say Jesus, I get killed. But I'm confident I'm not going to bottle it. Strikingly, he's confident for two little reasons. Uh, There in verse 19, I know that through your prayers and God's provision of the spirit of Jesus, I'll be delivered. That's quite striking, isn't it? The two things are governed by one preposition. As you pray, the spirit of God will help me stand up for the truth and say the right thing. And I'm confident that'll happen because I know you're praying for me. So Paul, how how do you feel if you get a letter like that? I know that when when I stand in, in court, I'll say the right thing because you're praying for me. You might think when you receive that letter, better pray for him. Better pray for him. Because our prayers make a difference. Verse 20 gives the purpose of all this. I pray that I have sufficient courage so that, in order that, here's the main purpose. As always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or death. For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. So here's Paul in prison, about to face trial. What would you, what's your main concern in that setting. But dear Philippians, please pray that uh, I get acquitted. Please pray that um, uh, the, the, the guards don't treat me too badly. But Paul says, look, I don't care what happens to me just as long as Christ is glorified. Can you just pray that? He says, there are only two options, I guess. Verse 21, to live is Christ, to die is gain. If I live, I'll keep on serving Jesus. If I die, I'll go to be with him. Brilliant. Now that's why a man on trial for his life can rejoice. Because you try substituting something else and it doesn't work. For me, you could say, for me, uh, to live is money. And therefore to die is, well, loss. To live is comfort. To die is or loss. For me, to, to live his career, to die is loss. For me, to live his fame, to die is loss. Therefore, you're going to be anxious. Therefore, if, if the things you love are threatened, you, you're going to be, you can't be joyful. But also, look, to me, to, for me to live is Christ. If I die, pfft, what does it matter? The gospel's spreading, the gospel's progressing. I go to be with him. Brilliant. I cannot lose. Because my joy, says Paul, is tied to something that matters. What do you live for, Paul would ask? You've got to have some purpose. Day by day, I was just getting by, just getting by. Or, or the majority of those were, I live to inspire other people. To do what? Well, this is such a vacuous thing, isn't it? To inspire other people to do what? To eat their bananas well? I mean, what are you, what are you, what are you, what are you living to inspire people for? It's this sort of vacuous nonsense that people talk about these days. I live to mentor other people. To do what? To mentor them to do what? To, to juggle five balls in the air? What does that matter? Paul says, for, I live, for me to live is Christ. And the progress of his gospel, that, that is something that inherently makes your life meaningful. 
the other night it was late uh, and I did that silly thing of um, rather than just going to bed straight away I thought oh I want to sit down so I turned on the TV it was just me turned on the TV and what's on and uh, it was uh, a program about public transportation in New York City now objectively it was a tedious program there was nothing very exciting uh, about watching you know they tried to gr- create some drama oh a train has crashed on, on you know on, on, you know what's it done oh no, no it hasn't crashed it's just stalled on on, on track 15 <gasps> yeah that's not exciting um the only bit that was vague if you sort of you know it's, it's late and you're watching this thing going oh. Just, you know, but anyway, there was one thing which was vaguely interesting, which was about the new line that's being built from uh, uh, Queens into Grand Central, East Coast something or other. Not East Coast, but East something anyway, East Line. Um, and uh, it's a big new line, and uh, it's encouraging to read that sort of big public engineering projects in the States are also useless. It's 14 years delayed. Uh, its costs are tripled uh, to over 11 billion. Uh, it's now due to open in 2023. So it's quite encouraging that these things go wrong everywhere. Um, but uh, you, you got introduced to the bloke in charge of the whole project. I mean, it's a massive thing that they're doing. It's a sort of channel tunnel sort of equivalent. And he was a third generation mining engineer. And in that wonderful, culturally acceptable way, he had the same name as his father and his grandfather, see who was whatever, Michael Leary the fourth or something or other, that wonderfully cultural way. And he was a mining engineer, uh, and as was his father and grandfather. So it was kind of what he did and what the whole family did. But you could tell when he was interviewed, he loved it. So you spend all your time underground in the dark, covered in dust. Yeah. Why are you so excited about this project? Oh, man. I won't go any further than that. Um, <laughs> but uh, 160,000 commuters are going to come in on this line every day. Every day. And then they'll go back home again. And this is going to stand for decades and centuries. So I'm going to have built something that 160,000 people use every day for centuries to come. That's a life well lived, isn't it? And you think, well, that's quite good. Um, no doubt when it's completed in, well, it's due to be 2023, so let's call it 2040. When it's completed, um, he'll be there and he'll cut the ribbon and he'll get a nice round of applause. And of the 160,000 people who use it every day, not a single one of them will know his name. And it will collapse eventually. And it's quite a good thing to give your life to. I mean, he's been working on this project personally for 16 years. And he's got a long way to go. It's quite a good thing. It's quite useful. And it animated him. But Paul said, oh, to give your life to the growth of the gospel, which lasts into eternity. And the living God knows precisely every single thing that you do. That is a life well lived. And you're involved in a task that will bring you joy. So he rejoices in his deliverance. He rejoices in the progress of the gospel, rejoices in his own personal deliverance. And then briefly, verses 22 to 26, what he cares about or his priority was their rejoicing. 22 to 26. So he's just expanding on these two options, for me to live as Christ, to die as gain. Now, uh, verse twenty. 
2. If I'm to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. Yeah, what shall I choose? I don't know. I'm torn between the two. I, I desire to depart and be with Christ. That's far better. But it is more necessary for you that I remain in the body. Now, it's not that he gets to choose, or which shall I choose, live or die? That's not his choice. That's the Lord's choice. That's Caesar's choice. But he's saying, uh, I'm, if it was down to me, I'm faced with these two choices. To, to go and be with Christ, that'll be wonderful. My joy will be far higher. Or uh, I can carry on serving you. Well, personally, obviously, I want to go to be with Jesus. It'll be miles better. But I'm all about you. So I'll stay for you because I care about the progress of the gospel and I can do more for that in your life if I'm still here and alive, even though personally to go to heaven would be much nicer. Weak word, wonderful. The principle is self-denial. That's Paul's default setting. Now, not many of us have that sort of choice. Should I stay and serve the people in my church family or die as a martyr? Um, that's not a choice that faces you in the UK for believing in Jesus Christ. But in much smaller ways, the principle is self-denial. I have a choice. I could go and visit Molly who's sick, or I could stay at home and have a night in. I would prefer to stay at home and have a night in, but it is better that I go and serve Molly, whatever it may be. That's my priority, because that helps the progress of the gospel. I'd like to go away uh, for more weekends, but that would be, you know, be good to get out of town and sit by the beach, etc., etc. But, but it's better to be around and encourage people. Paul can say, look, for me to live is Christ, to die is gain. My life is for the progress of the gospel. That is my priority. So presumably he'd say to you and to me, tomorrow go to work, or whatever it may be, as a solicitor, as a teacher, as a stay-at-home mum, go to work tomorrow, but your priority is the spread of the gospel, isn't it? You've got to do a good job, you serve your boss well, but you care about the progress of the gospel more than anything, don't you? Because it lasts. And if you do, you're aligning yourself with a source of joy that doesn't fail. So of course you do that, don't you? It's a lovely description, verse 25. I want to stay with you for your progress and your joy in the faith. That's what I'm committed to, says Paul. It's what every Christian should. I live for your progress and your joy in the faith. So here's a thought. You could try this tomorrow. Tomorrow someone says at work, what did you get up to at the weekend? You could try this. You could say, well, I did a number of things. But uh, I found it quite interesting at church on Sunday morning. The vicar said, what do you live for? Got me thinking. What do you live for? They may not like it. Uh, You might have a useful conversation. Or or they might sort of flap a bit and say, oh, I don't know. What was your answer? What, What do you live for? You could say, well, I live for your progress and joy. What? What? What do you? What do you? You certainly do not. Um, don't demonstrate. You know, you maybe have a useful conversation. But that's Paul. I live for your progress and joy. See, his priority was their rejoicing. That's because he cares about the gospel. But years ago, 
Uh, I heard, this is so twee, but that's that's what stuck in my head. I remember years ago hearing a a sermon from an Australian preacher, Philip Jensen. I think it was on this passage. I can't quite remember. But um, he he said, look, here's how joy is spelt. Jesus, others, you. That is so trite and naff, isn't it? And that's why I've remembered it 15 years later or whatever it was. See, that's really how you find joy in the Christian life. You look to Jesus, you serve others, and then yourself. Because if you're committed to the progress of the gospel, you are aligning yourself with a source of joy that never fails. So there's why Paul can rejoice in these extraordinary circumstances. Would you be rejoicing in prison if your life was about to end, or so you feared? Well, you can do if your joy is tied to the progress of the gospel. So I wonder if most of us, and certainly I'd include myself, uh, live our lives a bit like this. Here's our world, and here's our life. And uh, we say, look at, my, look at my rose. Look at my rose. Isn't it a wonderful rose? And all our time is absorbed on the rose. And uh, we think, oh, it was a bit dry, and, and we get a bit nervous about dry, and we water it a bit. And, you know, and our whole life is fixated upon the one rose. Uh, and Paul would say to us, There is more than in this world than one rose. You could go out and see magnificent gardens. See, if you look at this, you'll be a bit anxious. Uh, Oh, what are the petals doing? A bit dry, that one. Is that one going to fall? Oh, no, one of my petals is going to fall off. Uh, You might be a bit nervous about that. Or you could go to uh, Wisley. You've got my Wisley photo. I quite like this one. Oh, look at that. Look at that. There's a whole avenue of roses. There's only one avenue of roses. So you go to something like that and you think, oh, that's beautiful. No one comes to this and goes, oh. It never gives you the same sense of wonder, the same sense of joy. A ball, so you go and see that. That'll make you go, oh, that's amazing. That's beautiful. You know, there are rainforests in the world full of extraordinary plants and, and flowers. There are tropical gardens that make you take your, breath, take your breath away. They'll give you joy. They're just that much bigger. And yet we come back and say, but my plant, my plant, my rose, all I care about is my rose. The only thing that gives me pleasure is my rose. It can't, it cannot give you as much pleasure as the abundance of flowers. And Paul will say, if you live your life for just yourself and something small and progression in your career, and to be a mentor to someone, and to live to make others inspired, or whatever it may be, or I, what gives me purpose in life is attempting to live to 110 years old. Good luck with that. The, um, whatever it may be, you're just, you're just here, and it cannot bring you as much contentment, joy, pleasure, as looking up and seeing the gospel is spreading throughout this world. And even if your own plant wilts, the gospel is still spreading. And that is a source of enormous rejoicing. You see, only with that sort of attitude can you say, I've learned the secret of contentment in every situation. I am rejoicing because the gospel is progressing. Because for me, To live is Christ. That's what I'm all about. If I die, I gain. Therefore, whatever is happening, I can rejoice. 
I'm not there yet, clearly. But we can move that way. Let's pray together. For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Therefore I rejoice. Father, would you move us more to where Paul was so that our joy is not tied to the fleeting things of this life, not the fleeting pleasures of a happy holiday or something going well, a good week at work, but join the progress of the gospel which is taking place across this planet. Would we invest ourselves in that work, in your kingdom? Would that be our priority? And therefore, would we have a joy which is robust as the gospel goes out? We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.